Support for Class Dismissed comes from School Status. School Status helps educators at every level take control of student data for increased outcomes and meaningful stakeholder engagement. Find out more at schoolstatus.com. You are listening to Class Dismissed, episode 222, and I'm your host, Nick Ortigo. This week, which skills should we be teaching our students to better prepare them for a workforce full of automation and robotics? We have a list. Dismissed is the podcast that inspires educators through story. Each episode, we cover some of the hottest topics and news in the world of education. Plus, we hear from a guest with a bright idea for education that you can apply in your community. This week, our guest tells us what happens when the student is responsible for leading the parent-teacher conference. It's interesting. Stay with us. Hello, everybody. Nick Ortigo here, and I'm joined by friend, Director of Curriculum, Instruction, and Assessment, as well as the co-host of the Class of Smith podcast, Christina Pollard. Christina, how are you doing today? I am really good. Just taking each of the last five days very slowly. Right. And you should uh, take it. I mean, we are getting close to the end of the school year here. In fact, when this probably airs, the school year will probably already be over for many, uh, maybe not everyone who listens, but many folks around the country. And we'll be working our way into that summer. Um, You are in the district office, as you like to remind me, you don't necessarily have too long of a summer break. What do you get, like a a week or two weeks? Um, I don't. I'm a 12-month employee. I so don't you get always a go. break at all. I just have to, you know, schedule a few days. Gotcha. I hear you. Well, hang in there. Uh, do things lighten up, or is it just like we're ready to go for next year? Um, You can say it lightens up, but not, not really for my department because we're in full swing of preparing for next year. And then we also have our summer and credit recovery programs going at the same time. So it's not about me counting the days down till school is out. I'm I'm counting the days as a senior mom. Right. On a personal level. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah. And and how are things in that department? Is it is it um surreal? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I'm just trying to figure out, you know, just what type of emotions I'll have at graduation. I've been I've been pretty calm. Are you ready to be I mean, if I'm going too personal, you stop me. But are you ready to be an empty nester? Because you, you'll kind of be one, right? I will be one. And I don't have a choice but to be ready. But I'm trying to figure out just what that means and what it will look like. Because I think my husband and I have two different views. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Okay. Uh, we won't go there then. We'll, we'll save that for another episode, maybe. Uh, some interesting stories out there. Um, but I want to dive into one in particular that I really liked. And it was about basically future-proofing our students. In fact, that was the name of the article in Educational Leadership. It was written by Michelle Borba. And um, what it's about is how basically when our students become adults, more than half of those students will work in jobs that don't yet exist. And this is due to robotics and computers. And we just really don't know what the workforce is going to be like in a relatively short time, 10 to 15 years. So Ms. Borba actually put together a list of skills and abilities that she believes we need to be teaching in the classroom to make sure those students are ready for no matter what's thrown at them in 10 to 15 years. So are you ready for that list? And we can kind of dive into this. Yes, roll it out on me. All right. Do you want to take a guess at anything? Do you want to like throw anything out there before I get started? No, I I want you to enlighten me. All right. All right. So the first skill that she lists is self-confidence. 
She says, Gallup studied more than 1 million work teams and found that individuals who have daily opportunities to focus on their strengths are six times as likely to be engaged in their jobs and more than three times as likely to report having an excellent quality of life in general. So just believing that you're doing your job right. So I guess the question is, and I'll throw out some ideas and you may have your own, um, but how do we teach self-confidence in the classroom? Like, What should we be doing? I think that's tied to social emotional learning, um, helping children to build confidence. And it goes down to finding what they're successful at and encouraging them about it. And then identifying weaknesses because it is a part of adulthood and how you can build on those. And so having those conversations early with students or even your own children, I think that's critical to building self-confidence. And there's no other way to really feel good about what you do or what you're involved in unless you're doing something that you enjoy. Mm -hmm. So then your effort is, you know, doubled. The author's suggestion is starting in kindergarten, keep digital portfolios of their learning progress to help them recognize their strengths. This tool, mm-hmm. which, which might include curated learning artifacts and self-reflection, um, guide students in defining their interests, developing new goals, and boosting confidence. Um, yes. We've done an episode on digital portfolios. I can't say... I. I mean, that was two, three years ago, maybe four years ago that we did. Well, I mean, are we seeing a whole lot of that? Because it's not a new practice. It's been around for many years. Mm-hmm. I just, I think depending on the grade level, the the style and the format may have changed. Right. But starting starting in kindergarten, having a digital portfolio, I think it's great. But old school is just literally having that, portfolio. you know, student work samples uh, um, available. And not only that, having folders of, you know, more than one sample. You can only hang so many things in a classroom. So having something readily available for when parents visit. And even if you create a digital portfolio, then it's something that can go home with children at the end of the year as a keepsake. Right. So they can look back on their growth and development. I I guess the thing that as a parent that I always try to do um, is never like tell my children like, oh, well, you're uh, you're not really a math person. You're you're a, a good reader. You know, like I try not to you know, kind of like box them in. That's not our place. Our place is to develop and support and encourage the whole child. So even if you are a better reader than you are in computational math, then we'll identify those strategies that you, you know, maybe it's, maybe it's not even a struggle. You're just not that rock star in that area. Right. Then we'll, we should identify some activities that you can utilize to, to boost that area. You often hear stories about, you know, some of the most accomplished people or famous people that we know right now. And sadly, Sadly, they remember a teacher telling them that they would never be able to accomplish X, Y, and Z, Mm -hmm. or that if they wanted to go to Harvard or Princeton or, you know, some school that that has difficult qualifications for entrance, um, well, you know, you might want to look at the the local community college. You should never downplay a child. Encourage them to reach for the stars in every way. All right. Second skill, and this is one we talk a lot about on the show, and I think everyone talks about in life, and that's empathy. Um, so, and this, I think also kind of goes to what you were saying, like, how can we work on teaching empathy in the classroom? I think it it has to do with making sure that, you know, we talk about everyone is important and everyone matters and the importance of, of lifting the hand, you know, we rise by lifting others. So teaching service to children early, I think is really important. That is good. Uh, you know, and, and really like service is the type of thing I think that is a, it's a learned skill. Like if your parents bring you to the the local kitchen to, to serve, you know, or you do something with your church, I think that goes a long way as you kind of grow up and feeling like I need to 
to give back. But if you, it's, you know, serving sometimes isn't a comfortable thing. Um, mm-hmm. And I think you need to get outside of your comfort zone and do it. And then you realize that there's actually reward for both sides. Um, and well, so, it can be fun as well. If you right. think about different clubs and organizations within your school, um, sometimes they're required to do campus beautification or collecting canned goods for the local pantry. There's so many different ways um, to be able to to do community service and maybe not put yourself too far out of your comfort zone. The author suggests that um, students can retell stories from the point of view of different characters in a book or act out conflicting perspectives in history, current events, or real life. And, and I do think that's important, you know. Like to that, of, too. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Even, like, from their classmates, hear more about their lives and growing up. I mean, there's a lot of times where kids in the classroom are all coming from different worlds. And, and any, any opportunity to to hear their perspectives on things, you know, when it's appropriate, um, I think can go a long way to, to build some empathy. I agree. All right. So next up, self-control. <laughs> and, and so this one, I think, in, in the author's view, kind of focused a lot tied to self-control and feeling addicted to mobile devices. And, and I think a lot of us struggle with this. Um, I mean, it could probably go much further than just digital devices, though. <laughs> Well, I, I, that's true. Um, one of the things you have to try and teach children early is, you know, everything in moderation. And this might not sound very nice, but when my son was younger, um, we had, a, I don't want to say that it was a rule, but it was an expectation that he could only play his video game um, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. Mm-hmm. But Monday, Monday through Thursday, we didn't play video games. And that was to keep him focused. That was because family time was important, having di- having dinner together as often as we could, um, but reading together, doing projects, playing outside. I did all that I could to try to make sure he had those same opportunities that we had growing up, because I think a lot of that is missing. But also even um, within schools, when they have um, policies that says no cell phones, well, believe it or not, that actually <laughs> makes them want to bring them even more. So if you find ways where their mobile devices are in part of the actual learning cycle, I think that it's a little bit different than staring at things such as social media or all of the negative information coming from the news outlets. Yeah, the article suggests possibly um, it kind of points to San Francisco introducing a two time a day, like 15 minute quiet time, which is a ritual mm-hmm. where students sit silently and practice mindfulness. That might be, uh, you know, big jump for some districts. I think that's awesome. But yeah, I, I do think it's great. And we've talked a lot about, you know, mindfulness in the classroom and just different opportunities to kind of, you know, breathe. I find, um, and I, I think I've shared on this show before, that you know, I do practice meditation and just the, the ability to be able to set my phone down and for 10 to 20 minutes, like not touch it and just breathe and do nothing is a good exercise. Like I do find myself, you know, it, it helps with self-control, no doubt. I'm also- glad you shared that. I need to try that more often. I find that when I'm sitting still, I get, I can get really relaxed. Things that were worrying me, they tend to disappear depending on um, how I focus my thinking and my breathing. But I want to do a better job of ensuring I do that every day. So do you do that every single day? I'm about three times a week. Um, and I will say this, like it is just like going to the gym. That first few times you do it, you're like, I'm, this isn't doing anything. Like I'm, I can't do this. And, you know, I, I'm just doing nothing. I'm breathing. My my mind's still wondering. And you have to accept that that's normal. Like your mind will Uh wonder. And it's more of doing the exercise and learning how to refocus and concentrate on your breathing and other things. Um, 
and that's really when you start to grow. So all I it's would say- It's a stress reliever for sure. All I would say is if you're going to try it, stick with it for like a month and and then, you know, make your judgments on whether or not it works for you. Um, so I have to ask this question. Mm-hmm. Have you practiced this or taught this to your children? Because I think about a lot of the stress and and burdens that they're carrying. It's a little different than when we were, that that might be helpful. I've, I've discussed it with my older children. Um, I haven't actually like practiced it with them, um, but I have not really brought, you know, I have a seven-year-old. I, and mm-hmm. Why not? You know, maybe I should. Um, but we do in terms of self-control, there's other things we do with the younger child too, with, of course, with the iPad, but also, um, with sugar. Um, and so, and it's, we've we've had good results. Like when she wakes up in the morning, like a pop tart now is not the norm. It's like a special occasion or Saturday morning or something, you know? Um, Mm -hmm. and she's aware like, Oh, I don't want to have that because it's, it's got lots of sugar in it, you know, stuff like that. I like that. You know, one of the things that will probably shock you, but we never really bought soda in my house. Yeah. Um, it just was not ever anything that we purchased. So my son doesn't have this thing where he's got to have a Coke or, or any type of sugary drink every day. Um, he's still going through gallons of milk and, one to three days. <laughs> that's funny. That's that's good, though. I mean, I, when growing up, wasn't allowed to drink soda in the morning, and it actually backfired, though, because when I became an adult, I was like, I'm drinking a Diet Coke in the morning. I don't care what anybody says. But it Are took you me, still doing that? No, it took me years to break the habit, and now I don't drink soda anymore unless I have no good other form job. of caffeine nearby me. And I'm like, ah, oh, just give me something. Um, so, okay. all right. Next one is integrity. This statistic, I'll just throw this out there. It says 57% of teens agree that, quote, successful people do what they have to do to win, even if it involves cheating. Oh. And that's a little eye-opening for me. Like, if that teens think that way. um, I don't know. I mean, how do you think as an adult? Do you think that there's a lot of people out there who cheat the system, so to speak? Um, If you just really just ask that question in general like you did, it probably is the truth. And unfortunately, our our um, children are much more knowledgeable and exposed to things than we were when we were their age. And it's probably the case because just kind of look at it generally. What's driving um, our country right now? Politics? Yeah. Money. money? Yeah. You know, and how do you make lots of money? You figure out how to cut all of the corners to win. And that's unfortunate. I will say for myself, I believe in being a person of integrity. Um, I'm somewhat of what you would call a rule follower. I believe in following policy and doing things the right way um, because that's how I was raised. And I hope that I've imposed that on my children. Um, But when we think about the business world or, you know, big tech, um, hey, Whatever we can do to to be number one, to come in first place and to make the biggest profit. I don't know necessarily um, the best way to go about, you know, how do you work on like teaching integrity in the classroom? I mean, the same way I think that it's been for years and years and years. Honesty is the best policy. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Mm -hmm. Do the right thing because it's what's best in the long run. Yeah. I mean, you stick to the basics. Right. Yeah, no doubt. I mean, I guess if if you're hurting other people with your decisions, mm-hmm. um, it's kind of like the way you have to look at any decision you make. Yes. Like, it, even though you might be getting ahead, if you're hurting others, it's it's not great integrity there. Um, all right, next uh, topic is curiosity. Uh, the, you know, the ability to have that curious mindset, creative pro- problem solving. Um, I know I'm just like throwing these at you without even a time to think. But anything come to mind? No, but. 
well, I have, I struggle with the curiosity aspect of it um, and creativity because an analytical person is not going to be as creative. Um, you know, you know what I mean? Like oh, yeah, they, yeah. they're the numbers driven. person yeah. They're Yeah. They're, they're not on the creative side. And if you actually look at some of the personality tests that are out there, those that are extremely creative and colorful are not analytical and to-do listers. Right. <laughs> so, um, and there is quality in both. And I just think it depends on your industry. Do you know what you are? Have you ever done like an Enneagram test or anything? Yeah. And the funny part about it is I kind of fell in the middle of two quads. I am very structured um, and I'm a to-do lister. I've got to have facts and things have to be in order. And I'm one of those people that I don't function well in chaos. I don't like to just shoot from the hip. I have to have a script. I have to know exactly how things are going to play out. Even if it ends up shifting slightly, I've, as I've aged, I've learned to adjust. But no, I, things have to be in order for me. And that's what makes me um, good at what I do. Right. That's my opinion. Yeah, you and I are similar because I, I am, for me, I'm the, the data-driven person, like knowledge mm-hmm. is my power, right? Like the more mm-hmm. information I can have, the the more comfortable I feel. Um, and I'm supposed to share that information and is kind of the advice to somebody who's like me. Um, in, in this particular case, in terms of trying to, you know, teach more curious and creative kids, uh, this author suggests that educators can boost creative risk-taking in an era era of conformity. Um, And so, like she suggests, possibly teachers might pose daily challenges, like how many ways can you use a paperclip or how many ways can you create things from a circle? And just kind of, you know, doing that maybe in small groups and brainstorming and so forth and trying to So when you talk about so when initially when you mentioned curiosity and being creative, that's a little bit different than, um, you know, accepting challenges and solving difficult problems doesn't necessarily mean that you are creative, but you can unpeel something if that makes sense. And so having those types of challenges in the classroom and not just in a gifted classroom in all classrooms, I think that that's that's that. It causes deep thinking, which is necessary. Yeah, and you're right. And that's a good point. There's kind of a fine line there because my middle child is just brutally talented. Like he can sing and dance and just do all these things, but he's not a great puzzle solver. Like that's mm-hmm. not really his thing. Like I'll hand him some something that, you know, my youngest child can figure out real easily, like who can, you know, solve a Rubik's Cube. So it's like there's mm-hmm. different types of correct, you know, curiosity and creativity. I think it's not necessarily one in one. So I think that's what you were trying to say, right? Yes. Okay. Got it. All right. So uh next up is this is the sixth one that's perseverance, um, growth mindset, goal setting, learning from failure. Yes. You know, this one, this is one you always want to teach your little kids when they fall off the bike, right? Mm-hmm. Like, get back Long-standing uh, characteristic that's needed. It's easy on the, on the sport field, right? Like, in, in athletics, I think that's something, you know, perseverance, push forward. But what about in the classroom? Like, how do you... It's the same thing. You yeah. have to keep going. You have to keep trying. Nothing comes easy. Um, but also, we need our children to understand how to overcome adversity. So challenging them in a way that they can't solve um, on the first attempt might seem cruel, but I think that it's important. And depending on where you live and the area um, that, that the children are, are being raised in, um, understanding what it means to overcome adversity. There's different la- layers to that for different people, but it's definitely a much needed skill. Otherwise, you lose the ability to connect and understand other people. All right. Last one, optimism. Um, it's 
just kind of something that I guess, I don't know, I, I, I personally, I struggle with optimism sometimes because I'm a, a realist, like I see and I've seen the bad um, being in the news industry. I don't know why I, I get... Can you be positive with your realistic responses? It's something I have to work on and it's something that I've gotten better at. Um, so I guess in the classroom, how do we teach our kids to be optimistic? When- well, if we're teaching them to persevere and overcome struggle... Um, that that's part of being positive, no matter what the outcome is, and knowing that eventually we will arrive, eventually we will build that skill, eventually we will, you know, be better at um, these types of things. And it's okay that it's not, you're not there right now. And so that you mentioned growth mindset, that's a really important um, strategy for school counselors to share and teach throughout the school. And it's, it's one of the things that we talked about a few years ago It's the power of yet. I am not a master at this yet. I have I like not that. scored proficient on this at yet. I may not be um, in the first uh, you know, the, 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 the starter on the team, I'm third on the depth chart, but I'm not the starter yet. I'm going to keep building. I'm going to keep growing. I'm going to keep studying. I'm going to keep trying because failure is not an option and neither is quitting. Wow. I like that. I've never really considered yet being such an important word, but uh, mm-hmm. when you put it like that, it really is, you know, Indeed. Um, the uh, author suggests to boost optimism. Some schools include stories of everyday kids bettering the world during mm-hmm. morning announcements. They said um, at students request Garden City High School in New York added a TV monitor inside its entrance to display video clips of inspiring local and national news. Um, so, yeah, just stuff like that. All right. Mm-hmm. Well, so that's kind of the list. That's that's it's like you, we teach I think it's a great list. It is a good list. You teach our kids these qualities. Uh, they'll be better prepared for the workforce no matter what's going to be thrown at them. Um, you know, because I, I do worry about that, like computers and robotics are going to be replacing jobs. Mm-hmm. And so we really don't know what to expect. Are you ready for uh, today's bright idea? I'm pumped about it. Our guest in today's Bright Idea segment is here to give us an alternative to the traditional parent conference. We're going to take a deep dive into learner-led conferences. Paul Emrick France is a nationally board certified teacher, literacy specialist, keynote speaker, and author of two books, one reclaiming personalized learning and the other humanizing distance learning. Paul, welcome to Class Dismissed. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to have you. And, and before we dive too much into the nuts and bolts of learner-led conferences. Uh, let's define it for our listeners. Like, what exactly does that mean when you say learner-led conferences? Like, the student is leading the conference, like, uh, the way a teacher would? Um, well, it does mean that students are leading the conferences. Um, I, I don't know if I would say exactly in the way a teacher would, because, you know, I think it, it requires sort of a repositioning um, of what a conference is actually for, and then the the roles that you know everyone would play in that conference. So, okay. you know, the idea behind having a learner lead their own conference, um, it's really about helping them cultivate this you know ever evolving sense of self awareness. Um, it's about helping them learn to communicate what they become aware of about themselves, and it's also to empower them um, so they feel like they truly are at the center of their learning journey of that of that narrative of you know their growth over the course of a year or multiple years you've already eased some of my anxiety with your definition there because when i do hear the idea of a learner-led conference i i I get anxious i think wow um does a elementary school student have and for lack of a better term the maturity or even maybe more eloquently said the thirty thousand foot view to kind of lead what needs to be discussed yeah i mean i get it 
I think that a lot of people have those anxieties when it comes to, you know, sharing responsibility with kids for anything, you know, learner led conference or otherwise, which is why I think it's really important to first think through what are the skills students need to have in order to be able to do this. And then you have to teach them those skills or, you know, if they're really little, you have to appropriately scaffold them. It's not like you go into a learner led conference and the teacher is just, okay, just the teacher just sits to the side and says, okay, go ahead, lead your conference. Now the teacher is there, you know, as a partner in the process, helping the child facilitate. And my experience with this is, you know, you'll have some kids that can take out their portfolio or take out their journals or take out their work and they will just talk, 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 talk. And then you'll have some kids that won't do that. And so just like for anything else in our classrooms, right, we need to be prepared to support all types of learners um, in a learner led conference. You, I've reached out to you because I saw this article in Edutopia. I really liked it. Um, the opening line of it, uh, you say traditional parent-teacher conferences are exhausting for teachers and tend to counteract the learner-driven environments we seek to create for students. Um, do you find that a learner-led conference can be less exhausting? I mean, you can actually, I don't say easier than it being led by a, a traditional parent-teacher conference? I think the first time you do anything it's a little exhausting, mm-hmm. but once you get the hang of it and once you do it a couple of times, um, it, it becomes more sustainable. Um, you know, I think part of that is <clears throat> that if you only change to learner driven or learner led conferences and you don't change anything else about your practice, then it's going to feel like this really heavy lift. It's going to feel really disingenuous and inauthentic. Mm-hmm. And that's why in the article itself, I said the first recommendation is start a portfolio process from day one. So let's dive into that. Lead their conferences. They need to be involved, not just involved, like they need to be an equal partner in um, generating evidence of learning over the course of the year and learning how to organize it and learning how to reflect on it. So self-reflection is the second point in that article. If we're not teaching kids on a day-to-day basis and it's not embedded into your classroom culture, this idea of self-reflection and teaching kids how to do that, then learner-led conferences are going to feel like this laborious, heavy lift. And it's probably going to make teachers, make teachers, probably going to disincentivize teachers from doing them if they don't have those other pieces in their classroom first. So I would say to anyone looking to start learner-led conferences, if you want to just try and jump in, go for it. But I would actually, before you try to do learner-led conferences, I would explore portfolio-based assessment and self-reflection practices first. um, And then maybe do learn, like if you were to, if you were to aspire to learner-led conferences and you haven't done any of those things yet, I would maybe make year one about portfolio-based assessment and self-reflection, and then maybe aspire to do that in year two. I imagine this is something that you have done in practice in the classroom yourself, right? Like, where did the idea come from? When did you start it? And how has it been living on both sides? Working at a personalized learning school for three years, and we did learner-led conferences there. And I actually did them with kindergartners and first graders. And um, again, it's like, some of them were very quiet, right? And some of the kids needed a lot of support with sharing their work. And some kids got in there and they talked the whole time. Um, and so it's, but, and so then, so I started doing them and that was like, uh, let's see, seven years ago, eight years ago. Um, and actually, funnily enough, when I got back to my, back to Chicago, I started working for an independent school and we weren't allowed to do them 
at my at the independent school because parents were so they just wanted to get in there and like hear what the teacher had to say. Um, and so what I would do instead is I would still use the portfolios. Um, and I would just, you know, have the kids, um, bookmark things they wanted me to share with their parents and stuff. And they'd already seen most of the, most of the artifacts anyway, because of, but so that allowed me to see this, you know, being able to do it for a while in one setting and then not being able to do it for a while in another setting allowed me to really compare, you know, what this feels like for, for me as the teacher, but also for the kids. So what was what I, what I, yeah, well, so what I would see, um, going into those conferences is this anxiety from the kids. Like, oh, my parents are going to come. What are you going to say to them? What are you going to tell them? You know, and that, that to me is very, um, counterproductive, right. To learner agency and to, you know, helping kids feel like they, they, are in control of their, the narrative, you know, of their learning journey. Um, and that's, that's sad to me, right? Like we want kids to be empowered. We, we talk so much about learner agency. We talk so much about lifelong learning and then we turn around and sort of make conferences something that we do to kids as opposed to something we do with them. Did you, did you ever find that students were one of two directions? One, um, offering more information than they probably should, like oversharing, um, and maybe like throwing themselves under the bus or two, um, the student would completely paint a different narrative than the way they really were enacted in the classroom. And then like, how do you navigate those situations? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, all of those things are possible. I'm trying to think of, I find that more often than not, kids are harder on themselves than they need to be. Um, and and listening to how kids describe themselves and their learning is actually really informative for me. I think that all of us in teaching struggle with deficit framing sometimes, you know, talking about what's not going well first um, and sort of centering those as opposed to being asset-based where we use learner strengths and learner gifts to overcome obstacles. So when I have a student who's really hard on themselves um, and they you know, just talk about their deficits. That to me shows me something that they need to learn and something that I need to do a better job of coaching them on in, um, in conferences with them, or as I'm giving them feedback in the classroom. And I think on the flip side of that, right, if there's a student who really just paints this rosy picture, that's kind of disingenuous or inauthentic, that might be one of the places where I step in, in the conference and ask a really direct question of the student and also ground in evidence that's in their portfolio, right? So if I know that something was especially challenging for them, I can pose a question and say, hey, let's look at this artifact here. Will you tell us a little bit about what was challenging for you there? And that's what that's what I mean when I say like everybody has a role in this conference, right? The while the child's leading it and while the child has a lot of agency, this that doesn't mean my teacher agency is entirely gone, right? I am the person in the conference that is knowledgeable about child development. And I know that sometimes kids are not aware of their challenges. They need, they need coaching in that. And so that's the role that I can play in the conference is asking them those questions that will elicit a more genuine reflection on their progress. All right. So let's recap where we are so far. So if you're going to do this, you want them to be building their portfolio. You want them to be um, earmarking artifacts kind of throughout the year, or I guess even before the conference where it's like sticky notes. Is that right? Yep. And then I guess you also say, let them rehearse. What do you mean by that? Yeah. So I don't think it's good to have kids go into 
the conference not having practiced this a little bit. And some might push back and say, well, isn't that a little bit disingenuous? Um, and it can be, right? There's an element of that if you over-rehearse it or kids are just sort of saying what the teacher told them to say. Um, but just like with anything else, right, we need to give them practice and experience doing things. In an ideal world, everybody in the school would be, would be doing this. So by the time, you know, the the last time, the last, you know, traditional classroom I taught in was a third grade classroom. And so let's say you're a third grade teacher. If everyone in the school was doing this, by the time they got to you in third grade, they'd have had a lot of practice already with this. Um, so again, it's kind of where you have to consider your class, the identities of your individual students and the identity of your class as a whole, and figure out what amount of scaffolding or what amount of rehearsing is really helpful. Um, so what you could do too, you know, while they're rehearsing is actually give them a rubric that shows them, you know, what should be included in their, in their, um, conference, like what sorts of things they should reflect on. And to go back to what you were just saying about, you know, do any kids sort of just paint this rosy picture? One of the things on that rubric could be, you have to share two challenges that you've had or something like that, you know? And then when they have that time to rehearse, um, what I can do as the teacher is walk around and listen into conversations and kind of give them feedback there in the moment. Also, their peers can give them feedback on, you know, how they're doing with um, sharing about their progress. You mentioned that teachers should trust the process. Um, you may have some unhappy parents, I guess, with the idea. Parents are skeptical at first. And you know what? I don't really blame them because a lot of times when more progressive sorts of ways of teaching come through, the communication behind it can be really poor. Um, I had a similar experience in my last school when I was trying to shift the team to um, standards-based assessment, you know, using rubrics and um, and that sort of thing. Instead Rather of than like grades, you mean? Yeah. And um, my director at the time at the school was like, okay, you have my support, but just, just beware. And I was like, okay. <laughs> there was a lot of things I did to communicate clearly with them, such as like um, making sure I had a week, a newsletter come out every other week and sharing them the goal, sharing with them the goals of units um, and using these portfolios to send the assessments home so they could see them and reflect on them. And then I had a little um, card in the portfolio where they had to write me a note back to show me what they saw and, you know, that sort of stuff. So I think with any with any sort of progressive practice, communicating with parents, providing them the rationale, and then regularly communicating to onboard them is so, so, so important. And that's like why I said before, you know, learner-led conferences is just a piece of this. And unless you have those portfolios up and running and self-reflection up and running, I would even go so far as to say standards-based assess assessment up and running, then it's going to be really hard to get parents on board because what parents want to see is that their child is growing. If parents can see their child is growing without having to chase the teacher down or sort through piles and piles of meaningless work coming home, then they're going to be on board with it. And once they see their kids leading you through their portfolio and, and, you know, actually using the self-reflection templates to, you know, describe how they're doing, the most parents get on board. There's always going to be a couple that just want you to go back to grades because they've constructed their whole perception of success and how good your grades are. There's always going to be those families, but most families really just want their kids to be lifelong learners. They want them to take charge of their learning. They want them to be mindful and reflective um, 
And I think learner-led conferences really aligns with that. We just have to make sure that we're showing how it aligns with that. Do you find more of an appetite for this, um, say, at like, you know, educational conferences and things like that, where people at least want to hear about it and learn about it? Um, I actually think everybody's really interested in it. Like it, it perks people's ears up when they hear, when they hear about this. I don't think it's any one area that's more interested in it. I think it's just that there's a lot of fear to let, to let kids take control of things. Your book, uh, reclaiming personalized learning. I know you've got this topic in there. What else can people find in, in the book? I mentioned before that I worked in Silicon Valley for three years. And while I was there, um, we were the, the company I was working for was a personalized learning company and network of micro schools. So I was teaching full time, um, but I was also helping develop tech for the classroom. Um, and we were, you know, a personalized learning company. And our, our primary mode of personalization while I was there was this playlist tool. So think about like a Spotify playlist or something. And our, our theory was that if we created individualized playlists of activities for learners, then our curriculum would be personalized to them. And what I realized um, after several years there was that individualizing curriculum was actually not the way to personalize learning. And that's why the book is called Reclaiming Personalized Learning. So many personalized learning technologies out there are about the in, like the, di- the digitized individualization of content, which is actually, in the book I argue, is is dehumanizing and actually not best for kids. And instead, um, what makes learning truly personal, I mean, learner agency is, is really at the center of all of this, right? For learning to be meaningful, relevant, and personal, our job as teachers is to see, our, to see each learner as a human being um, and create an environment within which they can make choices, learn more about themselves, and actually be partners in the process of personalizing their learning as opposed to us, the teachers, doing it for them by giving everyone a different worksheet or, you know, putting kids on web-based adaptive tools and just sort of, you know, pushing them through curriculum. Um, And the other part of it too, right, is like this idea of humanizing personalized learning and reclaiming it as a pedagogy for restoring equity and humanity in our classrooms is actually more sustainable for teachers. And I can say that firsthand because um, I tried to personalized learning or individualized learning to this really extreme or to this extreme when I was in Silicon Valley. And I was completely burnt out by it. And it didn't have these, you know, astounding benefits for our learners like we hope like we hoped it would have. Um, And so this this reframing, reclaiming of personalized learning, I hope it's, you know, best for kids in terms of centering their humanity, but also really good for teachers in terms of them finding sustainability um, and satisfaction in building agency in their kids. So if I'm hearing you right, you're you're pro-personalized learning, but you just don't feel like it should be tech-driven. It should be truly more on a one-to-one teacher-to-student basis. Is that that correct? I'm pro-personalized learning, and I think we're just defining it incorrectly. And I think that that definition is grounded in just some really flawed ways of thinking about teaching and learning. Okay, so if you're if you're working with a school now, um, and you're you're encouraging a a teacher to you know really push personalized learning the way Paul sees it, what does that look like? It starts with one not getting away from defining personal personalization as individualization, and instead moving towards this idea of 
universally designing tasks and the classroom environment so that learners of varied um, abilities and varied identities can access curriculum together, um, or access, I should say, access learning together. So a really tangible example of this, and this is just one example, is the idea of open-ended tasks. Um, so the, the way that conventional wisdom on personalized learning would tell us to create curriculum is that you think about the different quote-unquote levels in your classroom, and then you make an activity for those various levels. Open-ended tasks, and this is, um, this open-ended tasks are grounded in an idea called complex instruction, which, which came out of Stanford in the late 90s, um, two professors at Stanford, um, and one component of complex instruction is this idea of multiple ability curriculum, or we call that open-ended tasks. A lot of people are familiar with open-ended tasks through Joe Bowler's work and mathematical mindsets as well. She calls it low floor and high ceiling. So the idea behind these tasks is that learners of various identities, various abilities can all integrate into the same task because either there's multiple solutions to the task or there's lots of different ways to get to an answer um, or to get to a, you know, to draw a conclusion from the task. Um, and so that's just like one example, you know, planning for that, implementing that is, is complex, which is the work that I do in schools with teachers. I support them in planning for that and then also implementing that in the classroom. Um, but that's one example of how we can move away from curriculum that's individualized and instead move towards curriculum that's just more open-ended and universally designed so that all kids can access it. Uh, I'll say uh, first that uh, episode 52 of the Class Dismissed podcast, Joe Baller was uh, an actual guest on the show, so you're in good company. Oh, cool. if, if anybody ever wants to go check that out, it was a great interview. And um, secondly, I think it's really cool that you, you have this perspective um, from being in Silicon Valley, working with an ed tech company, having, you know, being a nationally board certified teacher, working in the classroom. And, and so you've kind of lived uh, all these different worlds, both worlds of personalized learning, and, you, and you've been able to come to your conclusions. So I, I, I'm certainly thinking this is a, a great perspective that you have in your books here. Well, thanks so much. Again, you're listening to uh, Paul Embrick France. Um, we've been talking about uh, learner led conferences. Paul, we appreciate you joining us on the show. Are you ready for our pop quiz? I am ready. All right. First question. If students could only go to school for one subject, which subject should it be? Oh, my gosh. That's so hard. If what I would do is I would actually break down all the walls between subjects and do one big project based experience where they learned reading, writing, math, science and social studies, SEL all together in one. That's what I, I would do. I've never had that answer, but we'll take it. It's, it's, not, <laughs> it's not, not a bad one. Um, second question. What are we not teaching in school that we should be teaching? Oh my gosh. Um, something related to like what it means to, what does it mean to be a human being and how, um, gosh, and how to just like value and respect the humanity of anyone who walks into our classrooms. I don't think we emphasize I like that. that enough. What does every child deserve? Every child deserves to feel seen, heard, and valued in their classroom, period. What's the biggest challenge for today's educators? Sustainability. What's the best gift to give an educator? Higher salaries. <laughs> Which teacher changed your life? Uh, uh, so many did. But I remember my fifth grade teacher. She's the first one who comes to mind. And she, I just feel like she saw me. Um, I remember she let us... 
we wanted to put on a play and she just let us do it. We used a ton of class time for that. Like nowadays, I don't see how that would happen. Honestly, I think everyone would be too worried about the tests and everything. And she just let us do it. And I, I'll never forget it. I'll never forget it. Which book have you read, loved, and want to recommend to our listeners? I, I'm going to go with an education-related one. I, Zaretta Hammond's Culturally Responsive Teaching in the Brain guides me so much, specifically the, the idea of independent learning and what that means for equity work. Um, and so if you have not read that yet, I strongly suggest you do. And give us that title one more time. It's Culturally Responsive Teaching in the Brain by Zaretta Hammond. Great. Well, we appreciate that recommendation, Paul. And if somebody wants to find your book, um, Reclaiming Personalized Learning or Humanizing Distance Learning, what's the best way to find one of those? You can go to the Corwin website. Um, so it's through Corwin. You could also go to Amazon. It's on Amazon. And you can also follow me on Instagram or Twitter at, under, at, at Paul underscore Emrick. Um, and there's links to it in my bio. Um, and also I you know, tweet it out or send it out every so often. So all right, Paul, we appreciate all the great work. And hopefully uh, we can have you on the show sometime again in the future. Thanks for joining us. I would love that. Thank you so much. That's going to do it for this episode of Class Dismissed. If you want to send us an idea or comment, remember you can always email us at info at classdismissedpodcast.com or tweet us at classdismissed. We're here to support educators, but we need your support as well. So please subscribe to the show. And we'd also appreciate it if you could leave us a five-star review on iTunes. On behalf of all the good people working at School Status and Christina, representing all those educators out there, thank you for listening. I'm Nick Ortigo, and I'll talk with you next week. Class dismissed. <laughs>